Haggai chapter 2, starting in verse 6. Let us hear the very words of the Lord. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth, and the seas and the dry land. And I will shake all nations, so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. Almighty God, as we open up your word this morning, we would ask that you would do a stirring of our own hearts and lives. Lord, that you would work to encourage our walk of faith for those who are walking ever so weekly, Lord. Lord, those who need to have that strength renewed, those who need to have their hearts be encouraged, would you come and would you stir? And Father, would you save as well? Lord, would you bring salvation to those who are lost today? And may your word just go forth to provide for all the different needs that are here. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. You, be, you may be seated. Well, good morning. My name is Eric Maddy. I'm one of the members here at LEFC. I occasionally preach and teach and serve on the ministry of prayer, of prayer with my wife, Melanie. And I want to just thank the elders and Pastor Dan for giving me the opportunity to come and preach this morning. Well, as we just read, we are in the book of Haggai. And you might be wondering, since we are this deep into the prophets, and as we continue to trace the thread of redemption through the 66 books of the Bible, what does this book of the 12 minor prophets hold for us today? As you have been reading, as we have been reading through the 12 minor prophets, you're probably getting the idea that there's a cycle and a recycle of maybe the same messages over and over again. And the truth is that there is that cycle going on. But keep in mind, the book of the 12 is one unified book. The 12 prophets in Jesus' Bible was one scroll. So for us to be in Haggai, it's in a sense that we are in chapter 10 of a 12-chapter book. Each message of the 12 prophets have three themes that repeat itself over and over again. For God's people to hear. But keep in mind that they cover over 300 years. So it's not like all 12 of them came together in one generation and they keep saying the same things to Israel and Judah. No, it's covering 300 years of both during the kings, during the exile, and then after the exile. And these themes of sin and judgment and restoration are seen over and over again. But as we study the 12 closer, if you look at me up here on this PowerPoint. The 12, the 12 books are one unified book, but also as we study it closer, the first six books, the book sequence of Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, and Micah have the emphasis within his wording and with his, within their wording about the emphasis of sin. In fact, the Lord gives us in Hosea that very picture of not just being idolaters who who were going to other gods, but rather an adulterous harlot. So God is not mincing words when he's talking about their sin. But then the next three prophets, Nahum, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah, their messages have a greater emphasis 
on the judgment to come, the day of the Lord, and how God is bringing it. But then the last three prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, they have an emphasis within their words and within their messages of restoring the people of God for His glory. Now, we know through 1 Peter 1.10 that the prophets knew that their words were serving not necessarily always their immediate audience, but principally us, the New Testament believers of today. So here in the second shortest book in the Old Testament, what God has for us as New Testament Christians is truth and wisdom to understand and to discern. Haggai delivers a perspective that is both to affect our worldview, our worship, and even our work. So the title of my message this morning is Haggai, Rebuilding a Greater Hope and Glory. So as we open up the book of Haggai, I want to give you just the context in 10 seconds of what's going on. After the new foreign policy of the Persians allowed God's people to return and rebuild the temple, opposition and laziness has caused them to stop for 16 years. So as you remember, the banishment of the exile had been lifted. The king had said, go ahead, go back and start rebuilding your temples. 50,000 people came back to Jerusalem to do this. But then the work stalls. But we see in Haggai God moving in such a way in this redemptive story. And his movements are my main points today. If you picked up the notes in back, you'll be able to follow along, but also it'll be up on the PowerPoint. We see God doing four things. First of all, we see that God is stirring the hearts of his people, strengthening the people's work, sanctifying the work for his glory, and then signaling a greater glory to come. Those are the four things we see God doing. Let's unpack that just a little bit in Haggai, starting with the first one. In Haggai, we see God is stirring the hearts of his people. When God stirs the hearts of his people, he's not just convicting and prompting, but he is awakening and arousing, and we experience that today. In this instance, God is stirring his people to repent and to rebuild the temple. And he does this stirring through the spoken word, And through his spirit's work. Let's first look at the spoken word itself in Haggai chapter 1 verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Right away, we see the Lord is piercing their hearts as they've been in the land for 16 years. And he's saying, you're in sin of disobedience. Nobody was refuting that rebuilding the temple was important. In fact, we see in Ezra that they began right away to build the foundation and then grew that altar. So they were able to do the sacrifices from the very, very beginning. But that's where it stopped because all of a sudden the Samaritans came in And they put a little pressure on them, talked to the authorities, and they got afraid. Then somewhere in that 16 years, they feared Samaritans more than they feared God. They worshipped their comfort more than they worshipped their God. And they were living lives of self-preservation. 
The difficulty of life provides the excuse to put our resources and needs first and foremost, therefore centering on our lives. But for Israel here, they had talked themselves into a lifestyle of just not yet. We're going to postpone this. Postponing obedience is the same thing as disobedience. He is even calling out the disparity when he says, you yourselves dwell in your paneled houses. While we might not look at that today as very special, what, for that time it was saying, you are living in houses of luxury. While the house of the Lord has been burnt down and it is in rubbles. And it is in ruins. So he's stirring them. But he's not done. The word also says that he is reminding them of the terms of the covenant. You remember the terms of the covenant? That when we hit Deuteronomy, God says in Deuteronomy chapter 28 that if you obey me, there will be blessings. And if you disobey me, there will be curses. Well, in their disobedience, verse 28, I'm sorry, chapter 28, verse 15 of Deuteronomy says this. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. And then down to verse 20, the Lord will send on you curses, confusion, and frustration in all that you undertake to do. Frustration in all what they're doing. God is stirring by connecting the dots of his loving, disciplining work through the curses with their struggle in life. Look with me at Haggai chapter 1 verse 5. Now therefore, says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourself, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. And I have called for a drought in the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. Notice, it is God who is doing this. He is doing it to get their attention. Because the lack of satisfied drink, the lack of quality clothes, the lack of wage saving and the agricultural challenges that they were experiencing is all God reminding them of the terms of their covenant. These struggles come from the Lord himself as a form of discipline. And God is not done yet stirring. He is also recommencing the work of rebuilding the temple. Look at me at verse 7. Consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may bring, take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You see, before this moment, God had sovereignly used King Cyrus and said, go and back to your homelands and go ahead and build the temple. But now he is using his actual prophet. He is using his words to say, go, you're being disobedient and begin to build. The stirring of the Lord is saying here, put aside your own pleasures and seek first God's kingdom initiatives so that he might be glorified. 
You see, the people of God are created. We are created to demonstrate something gloriously larger than just good achievements and just our comfort. We are called to live for something bigger than ourselves. Now, this spoken word stirs through revealing sin, through reminding them of the covenant terms, and recommencing the building of the temple, it results in one of the most rarest things we find in the Old Testament. The people actually listened. (laughs) They actually listened. Look at me, verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of the Haggai, the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him, And the people feared the Lord. The people responded to the preaching positively. They were convicted of their sins immediately. And they had their hearts rightfully fearing God. You know, when God is stirring our hearts and he's connecting the dots in our lives, we are to obey quickly too. That can be very difficult. Because if we are even being legalistic with our lives and having a devotional every day, we go to Bible study once a week, and we study God's Word on Sunday morning, we have over nine things just there alone where the Lord is speaking to us about something. So that could be overwhelming. Sometimes we just go on to the next study. We go on to the next week of preaching. We go on to the next devotional without really looking and considering our ways. But godly sorrow should always result in renewed obedience. So when God is stirring our hearts to return to him, we can rest assured that he meets us there. Look what what happens in verse 13. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you declares the Lord. This declaration of his presence reminds them that through the 70-year banishment from their land, and even now as he's returned, and they've walked in this disobedience for another 16 years, he is saying that while I have disciplined you, I have not forsaken you. I have not forgotten you. Whenever and wherever we read that the Lord says, I am with you, it is both an assurance and a promise. It is the assurance of God's merciful guiding presence, and it is the promise of God's personal blessing and strength to come. So our insecure hearts that doubt at times, when God says, I am with you, He is saying it to give you a trust in him and a consolation in him. He says, move forward. I am with you. So that is the stirring of the Lord through the spoken word. But then there was a stirring of the Lord that we see. We actually get the insider view here in this narrative. We We just read about the Lord stirring by his spoken word. But look at the rest of verse 13. It says this. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. 
Haggai is faithful to put forward the word of God, and the people responded in the positive. They repented, and they began to repair. But behind the willing response is the silent working of the Lord, creating a willing attitude by the Holy Spirit's work. He, the Holy Spirit, has set in motion the courage and the mind, the disposition, and the temperament of the remnant. You know, this insight should be a comfort for us as we read this in Haggai's account. That we should be ever more thankfully aware that he who begins a good work in us will complete it to the end. No matter your insecurities, no matter your life crisis, no matter your limitations, and no matter your faults. For the Lord God, he makes us more than conquerors through Christ who loves us. He does that work within our lives. He stirs us. So that's the first work we see God doing here, is we see that he is stirring the hearts of his people. Number two, in Haggai, we see that God is strengthening his people's work. The second message of Haggai comes about a month and a half later. And because of the precise detail of his telling when it happened, we know that this message came at the very end of a festival called the Festival of Booths. It was on the seventh day, that sober day where the assembly comes together and they reflect on the faithfulness of God. Now, let me just paint the picture for you. You see, a month earlier they just heard that they need to repent and begin rebuilding. So they begin this rebuilding process. And in this rebuilding process, what God is doing, he comes up to this week and they had to take a week off. And this festival of booths celebrates the remembrance of God's faithfulness during the exodus and in the wilderness. Now in light of their own exodus and and leaving of Babylon through the desert and going back to a Jerusalem that was destroyed, surely coming back to this and now going through this festival has been disheartening. On top of that, They learn, they just learn that their meager harvests are because of their own unfaithfulness. Once again, showing that they have been adulterous and idolatrous in their own life. Again, disobedient. Therefore, discouraging. But pile on top of that. On that sober day of the festival, 400 years earlier, Solomon dedicated the temple. He dedicated the temple that was glorious and magnificent, had treasures that were worthy of the living, true God's glory. But now they're called to rebuild this? Surely as the three weeks have gone on, they're going, why bother? This is going to be almost impossible to do. You see, God leans into this in the second message when he says this. Hebrews 2, 3. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it as nothing in your eyes? For the remnant of people, they only knew the splendor of of Solomon's glory by the memories that was their heritage. 
See, you know, 400 years, the nation had split into two. The, the temple had been plundered and vandalized over those years and that they, before they were exiled. And if any of the senior citizens within this 50,000 people had survived this, they would only remember this plundered skeleton of a temple, and even they would be saying it was better then than it is today. Have you ever heard of the children who grow up under the shadow of highly successful and gifted parents? To really be known as so-and-so's kid. We all know people like that, right? We've all heard stories like that. To have the expectation of repeating their glorious achievements for the children can be discouraging and disheartening. So why even try? That's where many in this group have been perhaps in their motivation, losing their hope over the weeks that have gone on. The temple is going to be much less than what we remember. So why bother, Lord? But God doesn't coddle them. He doesn't bring them to the side and then says, you know what, forget about it. I'll bring someone else with a lot more tools, a lot more abilities. No, no, no. He does the opposite. He again leans into the festival of booths, meaning... He says in verse 4, Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the word, the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. Fear not. This threefold repetition of be strong, national leader, be strong, religious leader, be strong, the people of God, is the emphasis of the fact that he is reminding them that the strength and his power and his presence that was there in the Exodus is with them now today. All those years later, the festival of booze was inspired, was to inspire hope. Of God's faithfulness. You know, this morning we just celebrated the Lord's Supper. And when we remember that the cross, that Jesus' body was broken for us, and that his blood was shed for us, we too are to be inspired to remember that God's been faithful to us. So once again, he's assuring their pro- his promising pr- presence. And while there is no pillar of cloud assuring them visually that God is with them, he is watering their faith to take him at his word and that he's going to be there to strengthen them. In fact, that step away from the visual assurance is part of the redemption story that we're reading here. That he is enabling their faith to trust in his word alone even when it doesn't look like it. We today as New Testament Christians are not to lose the fact that God whose presence dwelled in the temple at one time is saying right here in the midst of this rubble of this temple still revealing and still declaring fear not for I am with you. Fear not in the midst of this destruction I am there. People 
who feel the rubble of their lives around their feet, take hope that God is with you. In Haggai, this is not a case of irony. This is a case of weaning. It's a weaning for the sake of his relationship with his people because God is with his people. His glory is actually there. So the glory of the temple is not about this impressive building. The temple is not the priority. The priority of God's relationship with his people dwelling with him is. So yes, he strengthened them to do the work and to rebuild the temple. Yes, it is a symbol of his presence. But he even gives the promise that says, listen, the silver is mine, the gold's mine, it's all mine. I will send what I need to because it all belongs to me. But like a wise heavenly father, he says also, encouraging his children, he says in verse 9, the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Now we know, historically, this this temple is gone today. All that's left is the western wall on the outside. But there is going to be coming a day in the new Jerusalem where there is no temple to be found. But rather, in Revelation 21... It is this, and we saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. The Lord is rebuilding hope in the hearts of his people, not to be found in a physical temple, but within himself. When the Lord builds hope and gives that purpose, he is strengthening his people's work. And that's what the second action we see God doing here. He is strengthening his people's work. Number three, in Haggai we see that God is sanctifying the work for his glory. This third message comes in December. And this third message is, is rather involved, so I will just summarize it for you. But Haggai engages a warning of dialogue with the priests of that day. By question and answer, he is helping them learn something that they more than what they knew. And the lesson and the application are very simple. It goes like this. While they are doing the work of rebuilding the temple, and while they have been offering sacrifices on the rebuilt altar, God says through Haggai's conversation, you defile everything you touch. You defile everything you touch. You see, even the right religious works and the right sacrifices are defiled to the highest degree because they do not make you holy. We see this over and over again in the Word of God. Remember these verses from Isaiah 64? We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Or even what Jesus says in Matthew. On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. 
Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Or how about this warning, this word to the church of Sardis. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have now found your works complete in the sight of my God. The mere production and presentation of a rebuilt temple was not going to make the people holy. And Haggai is making this case in verse 14. He says this, But from, I'm sorry, go back one. I missed it. Hold on. (laughs) He says in verse 14, So it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. But through unmerited mercy, we get the very next verse you just saw. Go ahead. But from this day on, I will bless you. Only the powerful touch and merciful decision of God can sanctify the work of rebuilding the temple. God radically changed their status from defiled to holy. This act of grace reveals that God is the same in the Old Testament as He is in the New Testament, as He is today, and as He will always be. That He is a holy God, graciously merciful to defile people who are sinning because it's His choice to do so. Why? Because it glorifies Him. It glorifies Him and His saving act. And God cares that His glory is known by His people. And when His glory is known by His people, the byproduct for us is our joy in, that, in His glory Our satisfaction is in his praise, and our hope is fulfilled in him. That is the mercy of God that we even experience today. So God sanctifies the work for his glory. And then finally, the fourth message. The fourth message comes on that same day in December, That final message is actually given to Zerubbabel. But because there are people who might be tempted to despair and lose hope, Haggai allowed the people of God to listen in. Verse 23, he says a few things, but then verse 23, On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, and declares the Lord, and makes you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Zerubbabel, in the eyes of the world, was pretty insignificant. Commentator Ian Dugan says this. He says, He was appointed as a minor government official in a backwater province of the empire. A career-killing move, if there ever was one. However, Zerubbabel was a descendant of David. And though the sins of the Davidic kings brought an end to their dynasties, God is renewing a promise here. If you're comfortable in your Bible, I would encourage you to circle those three words. My servant, I'm sorry, those three phrases. My servant, signet ring, and chosen. For it's in these three words that the hope for Israel is heightened. First of all, my, the word my servant 
Just like his ancestor David, Zerubbabel is called my servant, God's chosen representative to accomplish the work. And you're going to even read more of that as you read into Zechariah next week. But this small reference ignites the memory, the remembering of David and definitely foreshadows the great servant, Jesus Christ. The word signet ring. The signet ring is a symbol of authority. You see, you have to remember part of the story is that the last Davidic king was rejected with the image of the signet ring being torn off the right hand of the Lord by himself. But now Zerubbabel being declared the signet ring reverses that rejection and itself as a sign of a larger hope. The hope that God's purposes of bringing salvation through this family line is alive and well and a commitment that God did not forget. For he is a God who keeps his promises. And we see this fulfilled in Matthew. When we see and read the genealogy of Jesus at Zerubbabel, is Jesus' ninth great-grandfather. And finally, chosen. The Lord choosing someone in the line of David represents the renewal of God's commitment to once again take the line of David as his own. This message of these three words signal to God's people that greater hope and glory are coming. While Haggai only gives us glimpses of the redemptive thread, they're significant. It is significant, significant that God is calling his people to seek first kingdom initiatives. We could be part of someone else's small redemptive thread by witnessing to them. We stand as people today with our marching orders to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love our neighbors as ourselves. We are called to live for something bigger and for God's kingdom than just our lives, to not waste our lives, to evangelize the lost and make disciples everywhere we go. Yet the question comes, are we doing this? Are we being the light that we need to shine in our spheres of influence? Or are we being disobedient, just putting it off for another more comfortable time? And how are we doing them? Are we doing them in hopes that we'll be saved by them or sanctified by them? See, the Lord calls us today to repent if needed or embrace wholeheartedly the kingdom initiatives. It is significant that God says that I am with you. It is God's glorious presence in the midst of God's people that makes Israel different than all other nations. So it is with us today. We are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. He dwells and stirs and strengthens and sanctifies us. We are to reflect, represent, and resemble Christ wherever we live and live in such a manner that our actions, our words, our thoughts, and our belief honor God's name and show His greatness. And so when He is with us, He enables us. And it is significant that God said the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former. That latter glory speaks of the Lord Jesus who, in whom all deity dwells bodily. Jesus said himself, something else, something greater than the temple is here. 
And we are to rejoice and recognize right here and right now that God's presence is with us in this very moment. That we are called to worship him. That we are called to glorify him. So let's do that as I close in prayer. Worship team, you can come on up. Almighty God, you are worthy of all honor and glory and praise, Father God. We recognize that without you, unless you build a house, we, we labor, labor in vain. Heavenly Father, would you continue to be glorified in our worship today? Empower your church to go into this week, even into this day, to be a light and to be a city on a hill to those around us, Lord, that the lost might be saved, but the ones we love might be saved. And Lord, for us who are caught in this doldrums of self-preservation, that you would waken us up and, Father, live our lives for your glory. Live our lives for something bigger than our comforts. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name and all God's children said, Amen.